Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Whitney Phillips, assistant professor of digital platforms and ethics in the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon. Phillips studies the connections between political communication, interpersonal communication, and information dysfunction. Her monograph, This is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, Mapping the Relationship Between Online Trolling and Mainstream Culture, was published by MIT Press in 2015 and won the Association of Internet Researchers' Nancy Baim Best Book Award. She has co-authored two books with Ryan Milner, The Ambivalent Internet, Mischief, Oddity, and Antagonism Online in 2017, and You Are Here, a field guide for navigating polarized speech, conspiracy theories, and our polluted media landscape in 2021. Her forthcoming book, also co-authored with Milner, Share Better and Stress Less, a guide to thinking ecologically about social media, will be published in 2023. Phillips has written numerous pieces for popular press publications, including The Atlantic, The New York Times, NBC, and Slate, as well as her Wired Magazine Ideas column. Phillips earned her PhD in English with a folklore and digital culture focus from the University of Oregon in 2012. She joined the UO faculty in fall of 2022. Thanks, Whitney, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So first, um, tell us a bit about your background and then tell us about what you just described to me before we began the interview as your strange career trajectory. Oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, so my, yeah, my, my background really uh, intersects between humanities and social sciences. I'm really interested in what people do, what people say, how they do and say it, and, and because of those interests that brought me to digital spaces. Not because I was a technologist, that was never my interest, it was more, this was where conversations were happening, and so that was where I went. And just have followed the contours of the media ecosystem as it's gotten weirder and darker and scarier in many cases. So, so my, my research interests and where I started as a PhD student, ultimately I wanted, I wanted to study media stuff and I wanted to study political humor. Didn't know how I was gonna do that, but I latched on to something trolling, um, antagonistic behavior online, and then over the course of these last 10 years, have kind of followed it as it evolved into mainstream political discourse. And then from there, how do you think about um, ethically intervening in a, in a landscape that's, that's polluted and scary and fundamentally antagonistic and dysfunctional. And so all of the offshoots of the work that I've done have been kind of just responding to what I see and then moving in directions that make sense to me or that concern me, that scare me, that feel like they need intervening. Um, and so it, it's hard to map, it's hard to situate what it is I do because it's touched a lot of different places. I've needed to draw methodologically from lots of different sources because when you're looking at a moving target, there's not a roadmap. I mean, there's not existing, there may be theories that connect, but not a totalizing theory. So you gotta figure it out as you go. And so that's basically what I've done. It's why I can sit in a lot of different seats um, and also why I still struggle 10 years after my PhD to really summarize what exactly it is that I do and how I would describe myself. I just say I, study what I study. I, 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 I don't quite know how to, how to really encapsulate it, but I don't think that I need to. I don't feel uh, pressure to do that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this, a lot of this. So you 
just to flesh this out, you have a BA in philosophy, an mm -hmm. MFA in creative writing, and a PhD in English with a folklore emphasis. So why are the tools and methods, why have you found that the tools and methods of philosophy and folklore that you learned as you, why are they good for studying digital culture and digital ethics? I've never been asked why philosophy is meaningful in my, in my research, thank you so much. Um, you know, what I learned as a philosophy student was we've got a lot of castles built up in the sky. We have lots of discourses that feel solid. It feels like we're standing on ground, but so much of what we take for granted in the world is historically contingent. It's emerged historically because of things that happened in the world, and then we just take them for granted. You know, idea, the big idea in philosophy is just sort of truth. We kind of think we know what that means, but it's really shaky. And so, I always was really interested in the question of why and why and why. Why do we think this? Why do we assume this? Why do we feel certain ways about information? So as an example of that, you know, in a lot of the recent work, when I've looked at sort of ethical questions, one of the things that I keep coming back to is this assumption that we, many of us make about information, that the more information there is, the more facts we throw at a problem, the faster we're going to solve it. And when you look at issues of mis and disinformation, certainly conspiracy theories, facts have not solved the problem. That the issues that we deal with, it's not a lack of facts. Because if it was, then you would just tell people the truth and then blammo, it would be solved. So, so thinking about the assumptions that we make and how those assumptions kind of guide the media we engage with or, or um, what we create as, as producers, that is just so woven into how I approach these topics. So I, I can't imagine not having a background in or interest in philosophy and, and doing this work. I, they, are, they are intimately connected. And with folklore, you know, when I first started doing this research on trolls in 2008, there had been some popular press writing about it. There had been people, obviously, internet scholars, studying all kinds of stuff. But trolling as such, as it emerged on 4chan, a simple message board where all the terrible stuff online happened, that was a relatively new, it, it, it hadn't really been studied before. And so I found myself trying to say things about a space that other scholars, we, then there were a handful of us, um, younger scholars in particular, but you know, some, some faculty members. Um, and we were all trying to figure out what to say about this place, this, this space online. And I just found the tools of folklore in particular, it's, they were designed to talk about moving targets. That it wasn't so much what, I mean, the folklore research itself and the communities that the scholars were looking at, fascinating and important, but it was more the approach to media and, and content that was verby in nature. I needed something that would let me talk about verbs mm -hmm. because that's what was happening. And so folklore just gave me an entry point and also validated that it's possible to do work where you're following things as it takes you. And then from there, I just continued sort of borrowing from, from places that helped me tell the stories that I needed to tell. But those two, yeah, those two planks of my, of my research background, people are like, huh? Like, how did that, how did you? But again, I don't, I can't imagine it going any other way. I needed that background. I needed a humanities background to do internet research. So it, it, it couldn't, the story could not have been told different. 
exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've already started to tell us about your first book, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, mapping the relationship between online trolling and mainstream culture. First of all, um, what are trolls? And be specific, because your definition of trolls is quite precise. So talk a little bit about that. It, the reason that the definition is precise is because as I was doing this research, the definition became increasingly unwieldy. Yeah. That, that originally, in the way that I'm using it, the word troll had existed online for 30 years before this, this particular community emerged. But it was a bounded community. It was a subcultural community. It was a group of people connected, or at least um, sort of linked, to maybe they didn't spend a lot of time on 4chan, but they were influenced by 4chan. They shared an aesthetic that was born of 4chan. And the people who, who were trolls, they self-identified as a troll. They, they did it on purpose. It was how they identified themselves. And as the news media over time, so I started this in 2008, journalists by and large didn't know what 4chan was. They didn't know what trolls were. That changed quickly over time, but still, you know, as journalists were figuring this out, they realized, and the everyday public realized too, troll was sort of a helpful word. Mm -hmm. and, and people started to use it in more and more contexts to describe more and more different kinds of behavior. So now, I have no idea what people mean when they talk about trolls, and it comes up a lot. And they'll say trolling as if there's this agreed upon definition, but it, there isn't. It could be anything from describing, you know, violent white supremacists to, saying funny things to your cousin on TikTok. Like, that, it's such a divergence of behavior. And so I don't really talk about trolls much anymore because I don't, 4chan as a, as a sort of um, center piece of the landscape has shifted for all kinds of reasons. People are gonna use the language how they wanna use it. I don't really use that term anymore mm -hmm. because that subculture doesn't quite exist in the way mm -hmm. that it did before. But the book is describing where did that subculture come from and how was it in relation to more mainstream structures particularly the news media how did the news media kind of boost trolling to to be what it ultimately became um, how were they strange bedfellows so it was looking at the subculture of trolling in order to talk about mainstream culture and you know a lot of people were very quick to criticize trolling as they should have been because they were terrible but they were replicating and mm -hmm. drawing from lots of other cultural logics um, and, and mainstream structures. So if you're, if you're so inclined to criticize and, and attack trolling for being bad, what exactly are you? What, what are you actually criticizing? And how much bigger is it than the trolls themselves? So that was, that was that book, looking intently at something smaller to tell a bigger story about everything else around it. Yeah, I mean, that, that part of the book is so important because it's you know, you're tempted to just say, oh, this is the subculture of monstrous people. And you make this argument which says um, that subculture tells us about our culture, mm -hmm. the mainstream culture. Mm -hmm. So that brings me to the second book, um, uh, The Ambivalent Internet. Yeah, I, I to think about <laughs> it, Mischief, yeah. Oddity, and Antagonism Online. Mm -hmm. So just as you're very precise in your definition of troll in the first book, you've, you've spent a lot of time talking about this word, which we toss around all the time, ambivalent. Mm -hmm. 
So why is the internet ambivalent? What do you mean by that? Why is that, a, why is that the best term for you? Yeah, we went, I mean, just a sort of background, we went back and forth with the, with the press because they were like, well, people aren't going to know what that means because when people in conversation talk about something being ambivalent, usually what they mean is like, ah. I, usually what they mean is that they're feeling um, apathetic or like, eh, what, whatever. Ambivalent as a word, it's, it's, it's the root of that word. It means to hold two different things simultaneously, to hold it tightly. It's both on both sides. You're, you're holding both things. And so when you're talking about you know, what the internet does and whether or not the internet is good or bad, the answer is yes. The answer is yes, it is good, and yes, it is bad, and it can be both of those things in one moment. And so the entry point of ambivalence allows you to acknowledge and engage with the things that are destructive and antagonistic and antisocial, and at the same time acknowledge that those same things can also be super social, super pro-social, and generative, and all, all of it is true. And so how do you not get stuck either being too celebratory or being too focused on condemning what's happening. Because even, even the tools that trolls used, they were terrible. But those same tools of organization, um, of cultural production, are the same tools that activists, you know, fighting against injustice, the same tools that they used. Not used antagonistically in the same kinds of ways, but you know, it's kind of like taking an ethical stance on a pencil. Like, what are people doing with that pencil? And so the book is looking historically at that, that tension and, and so simultaneous to the overarching point that, yes, all of it is true. We are looking historically at where a lot of these behaviors are emerging from. It's not like people suddenly started being terrible when the internet was invented. We are complicated creatures. And so the kind of underlying argument there is that it's a brave new world and there is nothing new under the sun. We've got to understand the affordances and network dynamics that result in a lot of the challenges that we're dealing with now. And those things are specific to online spaces. But the behavioral stuff, other kinds of communication forms, social dynamics and networking are not specific to online spaces. So we can't just say, if we just fix our technology, we'll fix society. No, it, these things are so crunched up together. So trying to look at it in this holistic way um, and saying yes to all of the complications is what we are trying to do in that book. You also, I mean, this is clear in all of your work, and you've, you've implied it a couple of times, that you, you're motivated, you have this ethical dimension to what you do. I mean, words like justice occur in your, mm -hmm. and you've just talked about how these tools can be used for good or for bad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from the perspective, I think, of, of a lot of people, it's like, well, how the heck can you go into that universe, given all the complexities that you've just articulated, and act ethically? How the heck do you do that? Th that's the, yes, and that, that question, the sort of ethical focus is, a, it emerged slowly over time in my work, and it emerged primarily because I got it wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was first doing my research as a, as a PhD student, it, it, it wasn't that I was an unethical person or that I didn't care about harm or violence online for a variety of reasons, um, including personal reasons. 
I was not able to see violence for what it was. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I've written about um, in, a, in a couple of different places of how my ability to understand the, the context and the consequences of a lot of these behaviors, I didn't, I didn't see it in the way that I should have, um, in the way that I could have. And as I recognized that um, uh, over time, through the interventions of various you know, professors and colleagues who were both supportive of me, but also called me out. And also I was doing a lot of self-calling out. You know, it, I, I came to see the world and engage in the world in a different way from where I started. And, and once that ethical turn happened, and that is its own big story that's much bigger than this conversation in terms of my own significance in my life, once that happened, then it became not just, okay, what's going on in this world? How do we describe it? But how do we navigate it in a way that's humane and thoughtful? How do we take care of ourselves? How do we take care of other people? And how do we deal with the fact that we're essentially set up to maybe not be unethical online, but to not understand what the ethical stakes are or that ethics are even necessary to talk about? And so that realization was sort of born of the this close focus on what these network dynamics were. You have a series of network dynamics that make it so that you don't see the consequences of what you do. And you could be a really good person and, and you would never be mean to someone in real life. I, I take that back, that's not real life is the internet, but you could be awful to someone offline. And then online, you, you know, you're gonna engage in behavior that you don't even think of as being antagonistic. So how do you, tell the story of network dynamics differently so that people can understand what the ethical stakes are, so that they can make better choices, so that we all can have a shot at living in a more equitable online space. So that was a long, I mean, and what I just described happened over 10 years, but a lot of it had to start with me saying, I was wrong and I'm sorry. And I wasn't the worst, right? There, there I, I could have been worse. But I could have been better. And so then the part of the work is, is trying to refine in my own mind, how do I think, how do I think, and how can I be in the best way that, that, that I can? So, so it's, it's a personal question, a personal journey, as well as a, you know, academic professional journey. So let's talk about the third book, You Are Here, A Field Guide for Navigating Polarized Speech, Conspiracy Theories, and Our Polluted Media Landscape, which seems to me to be trying to do the kind of things that you're talking about. One of the things that's really, and this is also co-authored by Ryan Milner, the subtitle, um, uh, A Field Guide for Navigating Polarized Speech, Conspiracy Theories, and Our Polluted Media Landscape, adopts these ecological metaphors mm -hmm. to describe this uh, and uh, to address what you call information pollution. Mm -hmm. So why, what's this, you know, you're talking about the most technological mm -hmm. thing of all and you're using ecological metaphors. Why? Why does that make sense? <laughs> well, I mean, there are, there are challenges and potential dangers with using any kind of metaphor. They, they limit our thought. They direct us here rather than there. But when it came to ecological metaphors, it, and, and the other thing with, so here's the problem, the big problem with an ecological metaphor, it naturalizes a situation. So if you say, well, the internet is like nature, then, that, then the terrible things that happen on the internet then become like an earthquake, like not anything that we can control. And so we, 
open the book actually by describing an environment that's that's human created that's a, a wastewater treatment plant that's actually like a recreational area and a beautiful place to be in northern california to kind of emphasize the idea that yeah we're talking about structures that were built that were created and they were created by people who brought their own ideologies to those creations so there's nothing neutral about what what emerged we have the internet that we have because of those ideologies and because of those bodies. And that, you cannot, you cannot overstate that. We could have had a different internet. We could have had a better internet. We should have, but we didn't. So the book is telling that story, but the way that it uses the ecological metaphors, it's a way of triangulation. That it's not just positing, so the three metaphors are redwood root systems, land cultivation, and hurricanes. That it's not saying Facebook or TikTok or wherever is redwood roots, but it's how can you use these metaphors heuristically to help triangulate yourself alongside the technologies that you're engaging with, the culture that you find yourself a part of, and the human beings that you're interacting with. How, how, can, these, how can these ideas help you situate yourself in a way that will be true? So if you're assessing the landscape now using those metaphors, you know, you're gonna get a particular answer today. If you do a similar kind of analysis in a year, you'll get a different answer because the world changes. So the metaphors provide a way of thinking about our spaces more than they describe the actual contours of those spaces. You know, my background too in creative writing and in English, literary elements are a big part of the, the writing that I do. So it was an entry point into discussion. And then it also lends itself to talking about polluted information. And polluted information is not just about pointing to information and saying it's bad. It's about looking at what are the downstream consequences? What bodies are harmed? And drawing from you know uh, environmental justice discourses, whose bodies are disproportionately impacted? That, that these metaphors just kind of open up conversation. Maybe they foreclose some conversation, but they allow us to talk about these things in a really tangible way that's also accessible to the average person. People know about trees, they know about hurricanes, and they know about farming. So how can we get them to engage with these issues and dynamics and challenges that affect everybody? We need to do it in a way that, that feels comfortable that, that are that are concepts that they that they know you know something about so that's what we were trying to do with those metaphors in the book that's extremely useful because so much of so many of us know almost nothing about this environment that we occupy and mm -hmm. participate in all the time mm -hmm. and it's and it's very it can be alienating and you know if someone is not a technologist or they don't quite know they hear the word algorithm but they don't really know what that means then they they maybe feel I, I don't know, they're, it's not, they're not included in the conversation, and they should be. Everybody has something to say about this stuff. Everyone has experiences with this. How do you facilitate those discussions so that it's not just academics talking about this, it's everybody who is a stakeholder, which is everybody. So um, the next book, uh, Share Better and Stress Less, mm -hmm. uh, a, a guide to thinking ecologically about social media. So this is this one's interesting in certain ways in comparison to the work you've done before. For, so first of all, who's the ideal audience for this book? Oh, this is middle school readers. I mean, w with You Are Here, we wanted to reach out to, to people in the world, but we were talking to adults and Adults obviously have their challenges in navigating social spaces, but, but young people are coming up in the world 
in a way that certainly was different from how I grew up, different from how you grew up. And, and when those young people are coming up in the world and their parents and their educators are maybe themselves a little shaky on how this stuff works, how do we expect them to figure it out? And so it seemed like a demographic that could really use um, some intervention and, and some tools. So we wanted to do it in that way um, just to kind of, I don't know, open up a conversation that, that wasn't quite there. But the difference with this book, so some of the background in the work that I do, it's horrible, it's violent, it's harassing, it's, it's deeply de depressing. And, and my research has been at times, um, usually, pretty traumatizing. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to look at violence, it's hard to look at pollution, it's hard to keep looking at stuff that's dark and scary. And because of that, in order for me to keep showing up and doing the work, I needed to focus significantly on mental health issues so that I could keep doing my job. Well, in doing that, I would then bring a certain curiosity about mental health into my classrooms when I would talk to students about these issues. So there was never, it was always very natural for me to connect media literacy conversations to conversations about mental health and wellness. It, it, that was just, it made sense to do that. I mean, for one thing, because I would sometimes almost have panic attacks in the classroom talking about some of this, the enormity of, of the challenges. And in those conversations with students, something emerged in every class, in every university where I taught, and that was a very profound relationship between how we're feeling and what we're sharing. Mm -hmm. and, and that then got me interested in the brain science of stress. When we get stressed out, we all know this, when we're tired, when we're hungry, when our day is terrible. That is not when we tend to be the most effective or generous communicators. And online, when you already have a ton of these forces that are contributing to stressful outcomes or to anger or to sensationalism or whatever, you have a, a stress response that's basically baked into the network cake. And so thinking about information pollution and media literacy issues, we have to be thinking about what's going on neurologically in terms of our limbic reactivity. And so in trying to frame this book for young people, it was very important that we talked a lot about mental health. So the first chapter is just, here's how your brain works. Here's what happens when you get stressed out. And then here's what happens when you are bringing that stress to your social interactions. How can you bring it down a bit, down regulate, so that you can make yourself feel better, so that you can share better, so that you can minimize the the stress that you're causing for other people. So it really, it's a different kind of book, but the lessons of that I think are equally ap applicable to adults. It's just that we happen to be writing about it for, for kids. But I, I mean, I think thinking about mental health stuff in relation to media literacy, more people are doing it now, but we need to push hard there because that's, that's where a lot of these issues are rooted. So you've already started talking about your classroom. Mm -hmm. So you are a teacher as well as mm -hmm. being a prolific scholar. Tell us about a course. Ah, um, so in the fall when I first arrived, and, and I'll bring some of the threads of our conversation together, I, I was able to teach the 2022 midterms class. I taught two sections of the 2020 election class, which I still feel like I'm recovering from. But in that class, it wasn't just about the thing it was about. It was about the midterms, but reflecting what I just said about sort of mental health components of media literacy issues, it was also about how do we understand how we're doing and how that influences how we show up or don't show up to political conversations. So it was mu as much about, you know, thinking about 
that relationship between how we're doing and how we're sharing, how structural issues contribute to how we're doing, for better or for worse, often for worse. And then how does that influence how we talk to each other about complicated, difficult issues? So my classes are, are off, very often, they, they focus on a thing, but then it's also what are, the, what are the other outside, maybe unexpected elements of those conversations? So mental health was a big part of the conversation in, in the 2022 midterms. Having difficult conversations with your family over Thanksgiving dinner table, that was another big component of the class. So when I teach, I try to create I try to think about what is actually happening in people's lives and what kind of tools might they need to show up healthier, um, more inclusively, more thoughtfully um, for others, but also for themselves. Because if we're taking care here, it's, it's easier to take care out there. Well, Whitney, that's a great place for us to end. We've come to the end of our time. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak for, with us. And thank you so much for the work that you do. It is so urgent and so important. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Whitney Phillips, Assistant Professor of Digital Platforms and Ethics in the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.